for us this morning as we go into our sermon. And our sermon, it's going to be the truth of the Reformation, part two. Last week we began, and I'm going to open us up with uh, where we were last week. But let me, let me pray as we come before the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're living in times where we can be convictional about truth, where we can preach your gospel uh, without being ashamed. I pray that even as we hear this message, as we begin to um, open our hearts to what the Reformation meant then and what it means to us today, that we may be able to uh, be clarions for, for this generation, Lord, that we need a new Reformation, that we need revival, that we need an awakening of our nation and of our own souls for the purposes of God. Father, I pray for every heart to be open and every ear to be attentive to the word of the Lord. I thank you, and I pray that you may help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So it was 2007 when our, I think uh, the world, as we know it, kind of shifted and changed. I was in the wireless industry. I, I used to work for Verizon Wireless. If you guys know what that company was, I was a cell phone sales guy okay i was the guy that would sell you the bundle packages i was that guy don't go don't go for the basic go for the premium package right and everything changed in 2007 anyone know what happened in 2007 to the cell phone industry maybe you remember the iphone maybe that phone came out um not sure after that i pretty much everybody lost their jobs because you, you know you can't outsell the the iphone stuff but you know when that phone came out if you think about our life today it is much different than it was those 14 years ago. And I think there are moments in history that, that, that happen and, and have those effects in our lives. History shapes our future. When we think about the past, we can think of, that's the old way of doing things. Oh, that's the way my grandparents used to do it. But history ultimately shapes where we are today. And, much, and I said this last week, much of the reason why you're he here sitting this morning worshiping in these songs that talk about Christ alone, that talk about the grace of God, have ultimately to do with an event that happened in October 31st, 1917, uh, 19, 17, sorry, uh, 17, 17, there you go, 15th, 17th, there you go, 16th century. So we're living in a moment where we're living because of the past, and in fact, the entrance of Martin Luther and the Reformation was sort of like this, more than an iPhone, right? It was a spiritual awakening. In fact, the modern world as you know it today exists thanks in part to that moment. Think about, for example, the emphasis of private interpretation. You can leave here this morning, grab your Bible or go in your Bible app, read the Bible and say, that passage speaks to me. You can come to me like some of you come on Sunday and say, man, the Lord showed me this passage in Hebrews chapter 1. And man, I was so touched by that passage. You don't hear me tell you, that's wrong. You shouldn't be reading the Bible because I'm the only one that could interpret the Bible for you. Right? Because you're living today, um, thanks in part to Luther's emphasis of private interpretation, that the Bible needs to be given to every single person, that every person in this room can interpret the Bible for themselves. And here's what that, here's what that did to the medieval uh, people. Children were now able to read because they could read the Bible. Women were now given access to reading materials. M much of the uh, literacy and education that you have today in your schools is in part thanks to Martin Luther and the Reformation as it promoted literacy upon all peoples. 
Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther's conviction and refusal to accept the Catholic Church as the main authority of the world set the world aflame with this freedom of speech culture. Does that, does that sound American? Doesn't that sound a little freedom of speech? You can thank Martin Luther for that. Because in his mind, a, a low-class peasant culture should not be quiet. It should rise up for truth. His conscience, he believed that conscience should not be violated, especially matters of the Bible. There's this book by Alec Ryrie, and he wrote about the Protestant Reformation. And he wrote this. He said, this, this is talking about the Protestant movement, Pro, uh, the Re Reformation. This was the true and enduring radicalism of Protestantism. It's readiness to question every human authority in tradition. Okay, those of you in this room that are like those rebels at heart, man, Martin Luther was your guy. The Reformation was your moment. But the Reformation did some cultural things, but it ultimately did much more. It was much more than that. You see, the Reformation, and I want to give you a definition of the Reformation here, was a movement of the Spirit of God, moving by the Spirit of God to purify the church with the truth of the gospel. So the Reformation wasn't just about history, although it involves history. The Reformation wasn't about people, although it involves people. But the Reformation was a revival of the Word of God. It was an awakening of God's people to grab this book and understand it for themselves. For people to know who God was, who Jesus was. And these truths were, were summarized in these five solas. And, and last week we looked at two. We looked at that we are called to live by Scripture alone. That the Bible, the Scripture, these 66 books are not only the guide for our life, but is the sole authority for our lives. In other words, how do we have a good marriage? Sola Scripturas, by Scripture alone. That's where we go and we dig and we dwell on the Bible. How do we raise our children? It is Scripture, the authority and the guide. How do we give? How do we look at money? It is how we are guided in our lives. It is the Word of God. But it wasn't just that. We looked at also that, our, that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Through faith alone. And what do we say in that? We said that it is faith in Christ alone. Faith uh, sola fide or faith alone teaches us that God accepts us not in the condition of our works. That there's nothing that you could bring before God so that God can say, you know, Omar, you preached a great sermon. You know, Omar, you, you're just such a, such a great guy. You're going to be saved. That's not the way it works. Romans 1, 16 and 17, as we saw last week, the righteous shall live by faith, belief and trust in Jesus Christ. It is not merit or obedience that saves you. It is faith in Christ that saves you. So this, so this morning, we're going to finish off the solas. We're going to look at saved by grace alone, through faith. We looked at that last week. But we said in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. So as I began this morning, and I said the Reformation was not about history, although it involves history. It's not about people, but there's some people. Ultimately, it's about a revival of this. It's about a movement of God that awakened a world to what the Bible taught, and it was centered on these five truths, that we live by Scripture alone, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen? You guys with me so far? So we're going to jump in into grace. We're saved by grace alone. So before we jump in, we got to ask this question, what is grace? What is grace? Think about that for a moment. And as I was writing this, I was thinking, what is grace? Because when you see a ballet dancer movement in such beauty, what do you say? That dancer has so much grace. 
There is a grace period to pay your bills. Right, those guys who are always late for those bills. When I'm in, in a nice person's house, you know, they know I'm coming. They always say this. Even if it's funny, funny enough, even if it's an unbelieving family, they say, it's time to say grace, right? Someone that's behaving politely, we say that they're showing grace. A, a king or a queen, we often uh, refer to them as the highness or his grace, the duke of X, Y, and Z. Webster's Dictionary, and I looked this up, it actually says one definition, a short prayer at a meal. Definition number two, beauty or easement of movement. Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong, but even if you ask somebody in your, in your friendship circle, somebody around you, you're to ask them, what is grace? What will people tell you? Well, let me, let me go back now in history and tell you what the medieval Catholic Church believed and what at the core of the Reformation was the view, uh, uh, an issue was the view of grace. And, and it is this, and I don't want to confuse you, but I think this is, I want to tell you how it was viewed. You see, when Jesus died on the cross and he died for our sins, he rose to the right hand of God. So Jesus, I, I know this is going to be weird, but visualize this. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God spiritually, and Jesus won a treasure, okay, a, a, a box, a literal, well, spiritual box, with something called the treasure, uh, the, the, the storehouse of merit, which was a storehouse of, of grace, of gifts, of salvation. So, for example, if there was eight billion, eight billion of us, there was eight billion little treasures that God would come, and, or Jesus would take out of this box, and he would come down and just put him on you, and you would now be forgiven from sin. It was a storehouse of merit, a gift coming out of this treasure house. I know this sounds kind of funky, and you go, who would believe that? That was the theology about 500 years ago. In fact, the, the, ca the catechism of the Catholic Church holds that we go towards this merit, and the way people can reach these, these merits is through a couple of things. You ready for this? Here's how you attain this. Through taking part of regular Mass. That's how you get these gifts, these graces from the storehouse of merit. By going to confession. By saying penance if necessary. By praying to saints. I want you, I want you to feel what, what happens when you're living under this culture for a very long time. The church becomes what? The, the means, the way in which you receive this gift of salvation of grace. Some believe that grace was something we could achieve because the storehouse of merit was so far away that it was impossible for us to receive it, this gift of salvation. In fact, some people today even can refer to it and they say we can fall from, people fall from what? From grace. Because grace is something that kind of gives and he can take away because of what you do. He can look at, the, it's like a, a bad dad, right? That he's happy one time and then you do something wrong, he takes it away. So people lived in fear because they would be falling out of grace. They didn't say their penance. They didn't pray to saints. They didn't go to mass. And they did not have the grace, the gift of salvation that Jesus would be able to give them if they kept the rules and the regulations of their religion. Now, I want you to feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of how guilty you could feel by not attaining or trying to reach these graces from the storehouse of merit. Now, I give you that backdrop because I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Go, grab your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 2. And I think for us, and what awakened the Reformers was a biblical view of grace. So, grace means a lot of things, just to many people. 
grace was a thing for the Catholic Church that we can achieve a, some call it a mystical power. Grace was an external mystical power that you could receive. All right. In Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading here, and I want to tell you that, kind of give you the definition here of grace as we begin to read it from Ephesians chapter 2. Grace is the favor of God for the disobedient. Grace is not a thing that just kind of jumps on you and just, woo, I'm saved. All right, I felt good. Grace is not a thing, but grace is a disposition of God, is a character of God, is who God is. Grace is the favor of God for the disobedient. And when I say favor, here's what I mean. Approval, delight of someone. When we favor someone, it's because we want to be with that person. When we favor someone, it's usually someone whom I love. If I had to choose between my children and somebody else's children, I love y'all, but I'm always going to choose my children, right? Because I favor them above all others. Grace is like that. Grace is a disposition of who God is, an attitude, the nature of God, being displayed in favor, in goodness towards the disobedient. And here's what I'm adding here. Most people, when you ask them what is grace, even Christians say it's unmerited favor. Anybody heard that definition? A merited favor, right? A merited favor. I'm adding something here. It's a merited favor or the favor of God for the disobedient. This is key here because if we do not understand who we are in light of God's grace, then we don't know how grace functions. And here's what we see in Ephesians chapter um, 2, verses 1 through 10. Three things. We were dead, we were disobedient, and we were doomed. Okay, read with me verse 2. As for you, this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses, I'm sorry, 1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Let me stop right there. Paul spent all of Ephesians 1 telling, uh, speaking to to God's people about who God is, the great blessings, spiritual blessings that God is providing. And then he says, let me tell you about who you are in light of who God is. Let me tell you what you, where you really started so that you understand about the grace of God. And he says, one, you were dead. <laughs> you were dead. I want you to think about this, okay? What is dead? Paul turned his attention to the old ways of life. And he said, as unbelievers, before Christ, we were living and breathing physically, but we were spiritually dead. I saw a movie about 10 years ago called uh, Shaun of the Dead. It was a comedy movie, but it was about zombies. It was so funny, and I don't know how zombies are funny, but it was funny. But you see this movie, and zombies, they're not really pretty, are they? You don't really grow up and go, I want to, you know, I want to, I want to be as stable and as alive as a zombie. That's not really a goal for your life. Paul is saying that we were almost like zombies, dead men walking. We were living You were breathing, but our hearts were not beating for God. You didn't wake up and say, I love God. I want to go to church. I want to read my Bible. That's not naturally what man was doing. It says man was dead. We were spiritually flatlined. I heard a preacher say once, uh, he said in in his class, he said, what can a dead man do, right? And people are saying nothing. And then somebody shouted from the back, they stink. (laughs) That's all they could do. That's all the dead men could do. Spiritually dead means that you have no ability to respond to God, no desire to respond to God, no capacity to respond to God. We didn't even have the capacity to have faith. 
Something has to happen to be alive for the grace to be received. So number one, we're dead. Look, let's, let's keep going in verse uh, chapter two. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, again, looking backwards before Christ, when you followed the ways of this world of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are what? Say it with me. Disobedient. So we were dead. Now Paul says, I'm not going to. I'm going to keep going here. You were disobedient. You were dead. You were disobedient. The disobedience that you see in the world today, Paul says, that same spirit that you see and you go, how could the world act like that? The world is so sinful. How, how do we live in this world? Paul says, that's the same spirit that you had before you met me. Not only were we dead, we were disobedient. You weren't just passively irresponsive to God. You were actively rebelling against God. You and me, saints, we were unable to come to God. We were unwilling by faith to come to Him. We weren't just dead. We were uh, intentionally walking away from truth. We lived in harmony with the world's values. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Two, we were disobedient like the world around us. And number three, we were doomed. Look at verse three. All of us lived among them at one point, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, of its desires and thoughts. And, and look, look what this is going. This is verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were dead. We were disobedient. And we ultimately deserved death. That's where we were. Brothers and sisters, as we begin to think about sola gratia, we're saved by grace alone. We need to understand who we are in order to understand what grace is. Amen? Look at verse 4. Here's, here's grace. But because of his great love, God who is rich in mercy. What does he do in verse 5? Made us what? Alive. Alive when Christ, with Christ even when we were, say it with me, Dead in transgressions. And here it goes. It is by what? Grace you have been saved. You guys see that? You can't just say it's a merited favor. That's what grace is. That's a great definition. But you know what we're missing? It's a merited favor for disobedient men and women. When we understand our position before the great grace of God, only then will we receive and live through grace. Grace is expressed in God's love. As he positions us as children and no longer children of wrath. No longer disobedient, but you know what he calls us? Holy. No longer dead, but you know what he says? You're alive. No longer ultimately deserving wrath, but with a new future in Christ. He gave us a better position. He's raised us up spiritually. If you keep reading Ephesians chapter 2, you see that he's raised us up in, in a sense. All the way from death, all the way up to the spiritual blessings that he has for us. A better future a better vision for our lives, a future that is immeasurably full of riches and kindness towards us. So here is what sola gratia, sola gratia is, the reality that we're saved by grace alone. It is a grace that's given by God as he chooses. John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Has anybody ever been in, um, in, a, in a, what do you call it, when you, uh, in a, corporate game like soccer basketball and they have to pick captains you know and, and then you get picked and you don't get picked you know how you feel when you don't get picked i've been that guy 
doesn't feel, I mean, you feel like, really? I mean, I thought I did well and all that. Well, here, I want you to know, I want you to understand this, that when God, when you, when you have the grace of God and the faith of God that it's working internally, it's, it's God choosing you. It's God coming to you, awaking you into relationship with him. It is something special. See, God's not compelled to give us grace. God's not compelled to just do what you want him to do. He chose us. We did not choose this him. This is what makes the gift undeserving. You understand that? It is God's undeserving favor for the disobedient men and women. If God saved us for something that's good in us, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is only grace when it's free. God had no obligation to save us. The choice of saving us belongs to God. And, 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 and how this is expressed, and we're going to move now into in Christ alone. This is expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. When we say what is grace, grace is Jesus Christ. The person of Christ. John 1 uh, verse 14 says, Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. If you want to know and experience the grace, then you must come and surrender to Jesus. God came down in grace in the person of Christ. Not only did God talk about grace, not only did God say, you know, I love you, I love you, I love you. But he himself put, the, put on flesh taking on the form of a, of a servant and dying on the cross for you and I. Many people could say they love you, but not many people could live out that love. You hear what I'm saying? Many people could say many things, but only God can come in the form of flesh and give his life. And we see it in Christ Jesus. And so again, this is why we begin that we're saved by grace alone. Unmerited favor, unmerited, uh, uh, yeah, unmerited favor for the disobedient, as we just saw in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. But we're saved in Christ alone. In Christ alone. If grace was the key argument of the Reformation, then Jesus was the main person at stake here in the Reformation. If grace was the favor of God, the question was for the medieval church, even today, you might be asking, how then do I receive this grace? How then can I take part of this incredible uh, disposition of God? How can God turn to me and look to me in great love? Well, I'm going to go to a priest, say my penance, and approach the storehouse of merit and let that merit come and infuse itself to me. Is that how we're going to do it? No, that's not how we're going to do it. In fact, the Catholic Church argued that to have favor of God, it can only be achieved through seven sacraments, baptism as an infant, Confirmation is a youth, marriage is an adult, the unction at one's deathbed before you died, regular taking into mass, penance received through a priest, confessions of sins. All these were how you achieved grace, how you pulled grace down from heaven and you put it on mystically or powerfully on yourself. Along with the reformers, Luther believed this, that we look to Christ alone. Not to the church, not to a man, not to sacraments, not to priests, but for saving grace only comes in the person of Jesus Christ. This morning we sang that song, right, in Christ alone. Hear that song? Wasn't that powerful? This is what the church was singing and declaring. Only in Jesus Christ do we have the blessings of eternal life. Only in Jesus Christ do we have the blessings of a true church that gathers only in Christ do our children have the promise of new life for them as they encounter a world that is apathetic against God. 
according to a, a research by Barna Group, says that most Americans do in fact believe there was a historical Jesus. But I, I read this statement and, and it kind of stuck with me, and I'm going to read it to you. It says this about who Jesus is in America today. It says, there isn't much agreement about whether Jesus Christ actually was a person. By the most part, people believe that Jesus actually lived. But nearly everything else about his life generates enormous, uh, sometimes rancorous debate. In other words, people can believe there was a Jesus, but when you begin to say that he is the only way, saints, brothers and sisters, things begin to go crazy in your family. Just say that at your next family dinner, right? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you're like, oh, I'm not going to do it. I've done it many times. In our jobs, we have to not even say that we know a Jesus in in whom we have this grace. And so let me give you three ways of, of how Jesus is unique, why we are saved in Christ alone. Three ways. One, Jesus is our only sacrifice. Jesus is our only sacrifice. Again, last week I I said this to you, that God is holy, we are deserving wrath, as we just read. But there is this gap, there is this sacrifice needed, there was a death that was required so that we can be saints with God. Our sin and disobedience separated us. Much of the human despair, pain that we have today in our culture and life ties back to Genesis 1 through 3, where Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And ever since then, there's an echo within us that cries out, I need more, I need purpose. So you know what we do with that? We fill it. We fill it with our lives, with our jobs, with money. And then after that's done, with a new eye, whatever it is. And after we're done with that, you know what we do? We're still empty. We still have an echo calling forth for more and more and more. An article from uh, Business Insider was talking about the effects of the pandemic. Of you know, I don't know if you know, but the um, the unha- there's an unhappiness meter <laughs> that that people study about the psychology of the American person today, a- and more people are unhappy today than there were 50 years ago. It has gone up by something of 40 percent. There is a, a, an increase in unhappiness with life, which has you know uh, produced an uptick in suicide, not just here across the world, but for many of us, we can say, oh, it's a pandemic. But the pandemic is what did it. When asked, uh, they asked this digital ma- marketing manager making you know, millions of dollars, and, 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 they, and they asked him, it was it the pandemic? And, and he answered, after the pandemic, I'm asking, was it just a pandemic, or am I truly just unhappy? You can have the pandemic, you can go through divorce, you can go through all these things in your life that do, in fact, cause so much pain, so much so much heartache, so much things that will echo us into our lives. But there is something that God, there's someone that God has provided for him to be the sacrifice and to heal our souls. His name is Jesus. Amen? That's his name. And it is Jesus, the only sacrifice through his blood by which we have forgiveness and union with, Christ, and with, union with God. Uh, Hebrews 9, tw- uh, says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This was Jesus' mission. Hebrews 9.26, he appeared once and for all to put an end to sin by sacrificing sin on himself. The echoes, the faint pain that follows us is now put on the cross on an innocent man so that we can be free and full of life again. 
Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve, and give His life as a ransom for many. Romans 5.8, God shows us His love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, will He not also give us graciously all things? Christ is our only sacrifice. Christ is our only sacrifice. Why, do, why is this truth of in Christ alone so important? Because there is nothing outside of Christ that can fulfill you. There is no other sacrifice by which we can come to God and find union again with the God in whom we've sinned against. So one, Jesus was a sacrifice. Two, Jesus was the mediator. A mediator was the one that goes between two opposing parties and says, get along. <laughs> get back together. Don't leave each other. Fight this out. That's what a mediator does. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. God no longer looks at you as disobedient. God doesn't look at you as dead. He doesn't look at you. He doesn't just put up with you. You hear that? He's not just there and you're just kind of annoying God with your prayer. No, no, no. The Bible says that Jesus actually intercedes for us. And I said this before to you, when you feel like your prayer is weak, when you feel like your, even your walk with God is weak, Jesus takes that which is not so strong, the weak, what, is, what do you think he does? He shapes it. God looks at Jesus and his works and he says, it is enough. I am pleased with you. I love you. You're my son and my daughter. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man. This man is Jesus Christ. He's an advocate for you. 1 John 2.1 says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. Even when you're at your worst, there is someone with you telling you, it's not over. It's not over. Don't run away. Don't turn back to your old ways. Don't die again. Don't be disobedient. I am here with you. I will present you holy and blameless to the Father. You just submit to me. So Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our mediator. And Jesus ultimately is our Savior. Because Jesus is our sacrifice, because he's the only mediator, he's the only one that could be a Savior. Go with me to John chapter 14. Go to John chapter 14 with me. And it's just one passage, but I want you to read this with me. And here... Jesus is in the upper room during the Passover before he's about to die. And he tells them that he's preparing a special place in the future for them. And he tells them, you know, you know the way where I am going. And Thomas replies, Lord, we don't know where you're going. What do you mean this house up there that you're doing? And they respond, how can we know the way? We want to go to this house. But, and you're saying there's a way to get to this heavenly house. But what is that way? Here's what Jesus says, John 14, verse 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to me except, uh, to the Father, except through me. Jesus, the way to the Father's house is not a path. It's not the way your friends told you. It's not the way religion teaches you. But it's through a person. It's, this person is Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus this morning? You have a relationship with Christ this morning. Do you know that he's your sacrifice, that he's your mediator? 
Peter preached in Acts 4.12, there is no salvation and no one else. There's no name under heaven or earth by which men, men shall be saved, but Christ alone. To say that Jesus is the only way is offensive. To say that Jesus is the only way, the only path to knowing God might bring perplexity to you, might bring questions to you, might make you say, yeah, but I still don't get it. Nevertheless, that does not mean the word isn't true. This is why we began with Scripture alone. If you say salvation is in Christ alone, you'll be, you'll be called in the world intolerant. You'll be called hateful. But this is what Luther said at the end of his life as he was dying. He, he died with this. He said, I have taught you, talking to the people that he taught, he wrote this on a letter. I have taught you Christ purely, simply, and without adulteration. Would, would that be our ultimate call? That we may t- teach Christ. Uh, our, our, uh, our vision for this church, in fact, it's, we want to make Christ the center of all things. That Christ may be alone, the one whom we worship. So we have sola, sola gratia. We're saved by grace alone. What is grace? You need to look at yourself. We're saving Christ alone, the person of Jesus Christ, not a method, not a path. Not because you came to the altar one time when you were 17. That's why you're saved. Nuh-uh. Get that out of your head. You're saved through a person named Jesus Christ, a person whom you must know personally. But lastly, what's the goal of everything? Why do we meet here on a Sunday morning? Why do we invite worship leaders to sing? Why do we have a, a, a giving here? Why do we do uh, missions? Why do we do what we do every single day? Why do you pray? Well, the, the, the glue that put this together, these five solas, was the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria held it together. It alone stands as a beautiful uh, foundation that holds all these elements. It is the fact that everything we aim to do as believers ultimately has a goal not to be famous, uh, not to get a feeling, not to get something out of it, but so that God may be glorified. Psalm 115, verse 1, the psalmist says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Not to me, Lord, the glory, but to you. Now, before the pandemic, our family used to, as, as much as we can, we try to catch some Broadway shows. We try to catch some, um, you know, recitals of our girls used to do. And, and, and there were times that you would sit there and see these incredible shows. And you would sit there and you go, wow, man, that was just so incredible. Right? Uh, you leave out of breath almost uh, in shock of the skill and, and beauty of the performance. Now, in, in the English word glory comes from this Latin word uh, doxa, which actually means weightiness and heaviness and means importance and, and, and dignity and significance. And when you I remember seeing those things and you just you kind of you kind of respond in this way of just like, wow, that was that was crazy. That was weighty. That was significant. That was powerful. Really, when we say that we want to do things for the glory of God alone, we mean not just beholding the glory of God, the beauty in God, but giving God his significance, giving God his dignity, what he deserves. It wasn't that God met you halfway. It wasn't that you got your stuff together and and that you look kind of good on a Sunday morning. And then God said, you know, you're doing okay. Uh, Let me save you. It was that we were dead. And so that 
was meant so that God would get all the glory for our salvation. All of it. Romans 11.36 says, From him, through him, for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to go back to Ephesians here. Ephesians chapter 1. This is just verses, let me just read verses 11 through 14. 11 through 14. And it says this. We're almost done here. It says, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were first to put our hope in Christ might be, say, that we, say this with me, to the praise of His what? Glory. And watch again, verse 13. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until redemption of those who are God's possession, to the what? To the praise of His glory. Here Paul tells us about our predestination in Christ, about the plan of God for us. Speaks about the Holy Spirit sealing us in the Holy Spirit. And He encapsulates these truths under what? To the praise of His glory. To the glory of God. The Reformers believed that human beings, even the saints, even popes, were meant to be respected but not canonized. Not to be worshipped. They're not worthy of glory and the worship that is due to God. Amen? Nobody is worthy of that worship and glory. And so as we close this morning, and I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and, and, and sing one more time with us and respond. I want you to think about how the goal of the Reformation ultimately was to bring glory to God, was to bring praise to God. Our salvation, the grace, our new life was to bring glory to God. We live today in an individualistic culture where everything we do, you know who it's for? Who is it for? For me. Where everything we do, that the church is meant to serve who? Me. My job is meant to pay more to who? To me. That the government is meant to serve who? Me. Everything is about me. But the theology of the Reformation flipped everything upside down. It said, it's not about you. It's about God and His glory. That when you put God in His place and you put God at the center of the, the theology of your life, everything will explode from the inside out into blessing, benefits, and love in Him. And so as we sing this morning about Christ and His great name, I want to ask you this question. Do, you, do we need a recovery of these truths? If you could put that first slide. 